The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. We have been going through the book of 1 Corinthians, so we'll keep plugging along. Today we're going to be looking at verses 10 through 17, and on your bulletin, if you have one there, I titled it Judging Christian Ministry. Judging is one of the themes in verses 10 through 17, along with other important themes. So we're going to go ahead and look at that. I don't know how far we're actually going to get today in verses 10 through 17, uh, because there's so many just important practical truths. The passage is loaded, and we can benefit from all of it. So I don't want to rush through it too quickly, so we'll just kind of see how it goes and as the Spirit leads uh, and see what God has for us. Follow along as I read 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 10 through 17. And as I said last week, just to set the context, uh, Paul wrote this letter to a church that he planted. He started it in Corinth, a city like Amsterdam or San Francisco or that kind of a city, a very secular city and not a whole lot of uh, biblical background. And went in there and evangelized and God brought people to him and started small and he stayed there for a year and a half and pastored that church and got it going and left it intact. And so now he's writing about five years later to this congregation. His former pastor is writing about four to five years later. And he's writing them because they have problems and he's heard about the problems from many sources. And we'll get to the root of those problems. So this epistle for 16 chapters for the most part, it is corrective. He's not really commending them, but correcting them and because out of being a shepherd and a leader, and uh, he doesn't want it to get out of control. And so the section that we're in today, chapter 3, is uh, actually chapter 1 through 4 goes together. And it's one, the overarching theme in 1 through 4 is this issue of division and disunity that they had in their local church. So it's going to take him four chapters really to comprehensively deal with that issue, uh, the truth about division, uh, how to deal with it. And then in those four chapters, there are also many themes. Uh, corollary themes uh, that we can benefit from uh, that are relevant for us today. And one of those many themes uh, regarding division is having wrong judgmental attitudes, a wrong critical attitude. As you look down your nose, particularly at other Christians and their ministry in a local church. And the emphasis here in 1 Corinthians uh, 3, 10 through 17 is really how the Corinthians had a wrong attitude or a judgmental spirit, not just towards other Christians in the church, but towards the leaders in the church, and especially the Apostle Paul. So that's the context as I read, follow along, starting at verse 10. According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building upon it. But let each man, let each person, let each Christian be careful how he or she build, builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation in a church other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the, test the quality of each person's work. If anyone's work which he has built upon it remains, he shall receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, then that person shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as through fire. 
Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. So just in this short vignette, a lot of different truths come out, but that overarching theme here is the the Corinthians' attitude of being judgmental and critical in a wrong way and being judgmental in a wrong way of the leadership in the Corinthian church, going back to the man that God used to bring the gospel to them in the first place, the Apostle Paul. And so he has to address their attitude by addressing their thinking and give them biblical truth to supplant their wrong thinking. So let's go ahead and look at it. I broke it up uh, in judging Christian ministry. I just broke this passage up into four points to help us wrap our thoughts around it and make it practical. Um, And like I said, I don't know how far we'll get, but we'll start with the first one. And the first point is verses 10 and 11 regarding judging Christian ministry. And you have to, if you're going to judge something, you've got to judge it the right way. And that starts with having the correct standard or rule. So that's point number one is the rule of judgment. Christ, the foundation. By rule, I mean you've got to have the proper ruler or standard if you want to judge something. Say you uh, wanted to find out how, much, how tall you were and you pulled out a tape measure and it, had, it said it was marked by inches, but maybe one, several of the inches were three-fourths of an inch long and one of them was half an inch long and they're all erratic and they're not consistent. And what you have is a defective tape measure. You can't use that as a standard or rule of accuracy whatsoever to measure anything. So you need an accurate standard by which you measure anything. And so here, that's Paul's first point. If you're going to measure, if you're going to judge, if you're going to assess, if you're going to make conclusions, if you're going to criticize Christian ministry and other Christians and people in the church and ministries in the church and especially the leaders of the church, then you better start with the right standard. Because the problem was the Corinthians, they had the wrong standard. Five years later, it had morphed. And what happened was they got they heard the gospel, they got saved, they were excited, they were growing, there were new babes in Christ, but then they kept assimilating the wisdom and the standards of the world and trying to mix that in with their newfound Christianity. And you can't mix biblical truth with anything the world has to offer. You can't mix your Christianity with a little bit of the wisdom of the world. Because what that does is it poisons it. It's like when you put Clorox in your cup of coffee or cyanide. Even if it's a little bit, you just mess it up. And so that's what they had done. They'd taken wisdom of the world and tried to add it and mix it to their Christianity. And the end result was this mongrel of a mindset and a philosophy and a standard by which they assessed spiritual reality. And as a result, they were way off the beaten path. In the beginning, five years previously, they were just a little bit off the path. But if you're in the wrong direction, the wrong trajectory at the very beginning, little by little by little, as time passes, you're going to be way off the mark. And that's where the Corinthians were now five years later. They are way off the mark in terms of truth and how to properly, objectively, biblically assess spiritual ministry in their midst, among their fellow believers, and especially the leadership of the church there in Corinth. So by this time, the Apostle Paul came in. He preached the gospel. They got saved. He pastored there for a year and a half. He probably tried to raise up some leadership as well. And then he left. And then a little later, Apollos comes in and he taught and probably pastored there for a while. And he was an amazing man of God. So maybe in the first three years they had Paul and then they had Apollos. And then Apollos left. Sounds like because of problems and division in the church that was growing. 
And then according to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse, so in the next chapter, it sounds like other people were rising to positions of leadership in the Corinthian church, in the place of Paul, and in the place of Apollos, and some of them were off the beaten path, and it sounds like they began to affect the thinking of the Corinthians in a wrong way, and it sounds like maybe they were incorporating the wisdom of the world, human wisdom, mixing that with their Bible teaching, and now they're leading these Corinthian Christians astray in their thinking. And that's why 1 Corinthians uh, 4, Paul alludes to it. In verse 15, he says, For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ... So apparently you've got all kinds of teachers now in your church, in your local assembly. It's not me, it's not Apollos. He doesn't mention them, they're nameless. They become more evident in 2 Corinthians. Bad teachers. They're not necessarily unbelievers or heretics or false teachers. Some of them are actually probably Christian people who spoiled their leadership by compromise or relying on the wisdom of the world. And Paul's saying, wow, you've got growing numbers of uh, leaders and tutors of Christ in your church. Um, so he wants to address this. The, and they're being influenced the wrong way now. And so in hindsight, five years later, the Corinthians are making wrong conclusions about the Apostle Paul. And they conclude, we saw it in chapter 1. Many in the congregation concluded that, uh, you know what, Paul, he was a simpleton. He was not eloquent. He was not persuasive. He wasn't trained in the legacy of the Greeks. He was not a master of rhetoric. He just came and preached this simple gospel of Jesus. So he wasn't uh, very impressive by virtue of his eloquence or even of his physical presence. He appeared weak and sick and loathsome, according to the book of Galatians. And so the Corinthians are looking back saying, oh, you know what, He's, they don't have any respect for the Apostle Paul anymore. And they're, they're doing that because they're judging Paul by a false standard, a human standard, and not a biblical one. And so that's the theme that's going on here. And some of these people in the Corinthian church were also judging Apollos the wrong way. Because there were four factions in the church. There was the, the Paul faction, the Apollos faction, the Peter faction, and the Jesus faction. So three-fourths of these people kind of looked down their nose at Apollos. Oh, he wasn't so hot. You should hear my new Sunday school teacher. He's where it's at. Because he's incorporating Aristotle and Plato and Socrates and the laws of logic and the wisdom of the world and the latest in the schools of Athens and who knows what they were thinking, but they were definitely compromising with so-called wisdom of the world into simple, clear, biblical teaching. And as a result, in hindsight, they are assessing and criticizing the Apostle Paul, Peter, and Apollos illegitimately. And so one of the first lessons we learned from this that's practical is, and I had to ask myself this, have you as a Christian ever judged another Christian's ministry in your local church in a critical way? The answer probably, if you're a Christian and you've been in the church for a while, I'd say, yeah, I mean, we, we all do it. We're all susceptible to it. We criticize people in competing ministries. Well, I only have 17 people in my Sunday school class, and that guy has 27. I'm going to start bringing donuts to class or whatever. But people are. They're territorial, unfortunately. Christians can be that way in the church. And we start judging other ministries in the local church. Or as congregants, we sit in the pew. I've been there. And we start judging the leaders in the church. We start judging the preachers in the church. We start judging literally their, their teaching and not just the content of it, but their delivery. 
Oh, that didn't woo me. That didn't move me for some reason. That wasn't impressive. And then a preacher gives a sermon and then some Christians hold up their scorecard. 7.2. The judge from Yugoslavia. 6.5. That's a pretty bad sermon. 9.9. But we really do that in our mind a lot of times. So we're illegitimately critical and making premature judgments on the efficacy of any given ministry by Christians in the church, all the way from the leaders down to the Sunday school teachers, down to the servants behind the scenes. And so that's Paul, one of Paul's main exhortations here is be careful how you judge other believers in the church. Be careful by which standard you're using. And be careful, most of all, about yourself and how you build on the foundation in the local church in light of your ministry and what you preoccupy your time with. Is it legitimate or not? So this is the theme. This is what he's addressing here. Corinthians. Man, you are judgmental. You are critical. You're coming to wrong conclusions because you have a wrong standard. You have a false rule of judgment. So that's the first thing he wants to correct. The rule of judgment needs to be right. needs to be proper. It needs to be God's standard of truth when evaluating ministry. And that is, what is the rule of judgment? What is the standard of measuring the legitimacy of any given ministry in a church or a Christian's life? The, the standard is Christ the foundation. It's really that simple. That's not a simplistic platitude. Jesus. That's what Paul says. Christ is the standard by which we measure any spiritual truth or reality. And so that's verses 10 and 11. So let's look more at the details of 10 and 11 here about this. Now they have the wrong attitude and the wrong standard of judgment and they need to correct that. Going back to the basics. The Apostle Paul says, according to the great... He just got finished talking about him and, and Apollos who ministered at different times in Corinth. And the Corinthians were pitting Paul against Apollos. And Paul corrected that and said, no, it's not me versus Apollos. We complement each other in the ministry. We're teammates. We work together. So verse 10 is on the heels of that. Then he says, well, and speaking of myself in your midst, according to the grace of God, which was given to me, so he's saying, you Corinthians, there's at least almost three-fourths of you are criticizing me now, saying my ministry wasn't legitimate. You know, I need to remind you that I was an apostle in your midst. I was an evangelist and pastor in your midst, not because of my own choice or volition, but God gifted me with that responsibility. God commissioned me and called me to go to Corinth. It was God's doing, not mine, and it was a gift from God. You want to blame somebody about the illegitimacy and what you didn't like about my ministry, then blame God. That's what he's saying. This is a rebuke to the Corinthians regarding their bad attitude towards Paul. According to the grace of God which was given to me, so Paul was given a stewardship responsibility to go into Corinth, plant the church, pastor it, train it the best he could. Well, how did he do? Well, here's Paul's own self-evaluation. As a wise master builder, I was an expert at what I did. And he's not flattering himself or patting himself on the back. Actually, it's literally the word there, wise, means skilled. When I came in and laid the foundation of the church, I did it in a skilled manner. And it wasn't in his own strength. It was through, and he already talked about this in chapter 1. It was through the power of the Holy Spirit 
who was in him and led him, and it was through the power of the preached word of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All the efficacy, all the power, all that worked, all that changed people's lives was of God, not of, not of Paul. Paul was simply a faithful conduit of God's power and God's truth. And that's why he could say, I was a wise builder. I was skilled. I used the right thing. I only get, used the resources that God gave me, and I did it obediently. And it was the gospel of Jesus Christ is what I brought. And I was faithful to the gospel. And that's why he considers himself skilled, the master builder. And he's talking about church planting. That's what he did. He went in and he planted a church. And he was the architect or the sub-architect under the Lord Jesus Christ who builds the church. And Paul was faithful. He laid the proper foundation. That's where you start when you build a house. You must lay the foundation. It's critical. You've got to do it right. And you only do it one time. It is not to be repeated again. And everything else builds on that foundation. And if you've got an unstable foundation, then the house is going to collapse or it's going to teeter or it's going to crack years down the road. And Paul's saying, I, I faithfully laid the proper foundation for spiritual ministry in this church. And you, Corinthians, five years later, are enjoying the fruits of my labor as I laid the proper foundation and you don't even realize it. So according to the grace of God which was given to me, as a skilled master builder, what, what did you do, Paul? I laid a foundation past tense. I did it five years ago when I came into the city. I laid the foundation. I laid the foundation of the church. And it's not just any foundation. It's the one and only foundation. It was a spiritual foundation. I laid the foundation of the Corinthian church, and another is building upon it. Ever since I laid the foundation of the church... Others, other Christians, are building on the foundation that I laid. They're building upon it, whether it's good or bad. They're building on it. They're doing ministry. And there's teaching that's going on. It's so when he says building upon it, that's referring to preaching, instruction. He's primarily talking about the teachers who have been there teaching since he left, from Apollos to even guys that were a little shady and off-kilter. So you got your teachers, they're building upon my foundation. Not only that, every single Christian who is at Corinth participating and contributing is building upon the foundation that I laid. And he's going to say, you better be careful about how you're building. You better be careful about the nature of your ministry. You better be careful about what you're teaching and believing. You better be careful about the leaders and teachers you're following and advocating. But I laid a foundation that was true and another is building upon it. And here's this is the main phrase in the entire passage. Chapter uh, 3, verse 10, the last part of verse 10. But let each man, let each Christian woman, let each believer be careful how they build upon the foundation that I laid. That is the key passage in this uh, key verse in this entire passage. And it starts with the leadership of the church. And it trickles down to every person who's a believer and even who aren't believers. Maybe they're spiritual phonies, but they're in the church and they're doing things and they're contributing. So this is a warning from Paul that actually is a warning from God. Be careful how you build on the proper foundation that I laid. Don't tamper with the proper foundation. Don't mess up the proper foundation. Don't smother and cloud out the vision of the original proper foundation that was laid in the church. And that, that's a great warning. It's practical for us today because you know what? Churches can start out properly and they can veer off, can't they? It's the same with so-called Christian schools and seminaries throughout American history. I mean, just look at it. 
and over in Europe where an institution started as a legitimate, bona fide, Bible-believing, simple Christian institution, whether it was a Christian college or a Christian seminary, and 50 years goes by and 100 years goes by, 200 years goes by, it is so far removed from the foundation, it's unrecognizable. It's a totally secular university now. And there's not even any believers there. They don't even ascribe to the Christian worldview anymore. It's like, what happened? Well, we veered from the foundation. People came along and built upon it. Life after life, generation after generation, decade after decade, now century after century. And they they are off the beaten path. And Paul's saying this can happen. This happens to local churches too. Church can start out great with the proper foundation and maybe a generation or two goes by and there wasn't faithfulness to the foundation that was laid and now all of a sudden it's a shell of what it should be because people didn't build properly on the foundation that was laid. And that's why he says in verse 11, for no one... No so-called Christian can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. What is the foundation that Paul laid? The answer is at the end of verse 11. It is Jesus Christ. That is a summary statement. Jesus Christ is the epicenter and the circumference of all that drove Paul in ministry. Jesus Christ is the answer. That is the foundation. He is the standard. He is perfection. He is eternal. He is almighty God. Jesus is the standard of assessing and diagnosing and judging all spiritual ministry. Jesus Christ is the standard. He is the foundation. And everything that happens after that needs to be Christ-centered and in keeping and complement the foundation of Jesus Christ. Jesus is everything. So there are... And Paul's emphatic in verse 11, by the way. He says, I laid a foundation. It was the proper foundation. It was the foundation of Jesus Christ. And there's no competing foundations. There shouldn't be. If there are, they are false, they are phony, they are destructive, they are misleading, they deceive people. And there are all kinds of churches with a foundation that is not Christocentric or legitimately Christ-centered. There are all kinds of religious institutions that say that they are of God, but they are not Christ-centered. They're not faithful to this truth, that the foundation and the one and only foundation is Jesus Christ and Him alone. So even today, we have all kinds of competing foundations, religious truisms, that compete with Jesus Christ as the foundation of the church. You can just go on all kinds of churches and just look at their website on the homepage, which I did, of so-called historic Protestant denominations, so-called evangelical churches, and even on their homepages, on their basic philosophy. Here is what we stand for. If they could distill it all down, here is our foundation. And I was aghast and shocked at some of the answers that are being given routinely, and they're growing more and more. This is in American Christianity. People are getting confused as a result. So that'd be kind of an interesting question to go out and talk to people, maybe starting here in our own church, asking people, okay, what is the foundation of a church? If you could distill it all down in a sentence or less, what, what is it? What do we stand for? What's the foundation by which... The church should be preaching and this is our backbone, this is our baseline, this is our starting point. What is that truth? What is our ultimate bottom line settled conviction that defines us as a people? I bet you we might get various differing answers, that some of which might surprise us. I know that's true if you went out into the world. And if we interviewed all the local churches around the country, we'd get a disparity of answers, many of which would contradict each other. And then it would be even worse if you went into the world and asked them, what do you think, the church, if you could summarize what the church 
the Christian church stands for in a sentence, what would you say? That'd be kind of interesting and revealing to see what the world thought because the world, they just simply have a perception or their own interpretation of what they think Christianity is or what Christians stand for. And it's based on their limited interaction with Christians that they know. Or it's based on their limited uh, interactions of people who call themselves Christians who might not even be Christians. And so they have an absolutely distorted picture of true Christianity and an absolutely distorted view of what the foundation message of a church should be. We see that all the time in the world. You see it on Larry King Live or whatever, and they interview people, and you got some guy from either he's irreligious or he's an atheist or he's from some other religion, and he's allowed to comment in a nutshell or a sentence about what he thinks Christianity stands for. And usually they're dead wrong. I'm thinking, I don't believe that. I don't stand for that. That doesn't represent what I believe is Christianity. That is not in the Bible. That's not biblical. That is not the foundation. And that unbeliever many times is not really the one to blame. They're saying that out of ignorance by virtue of the source that fed them that wrong information because, of, again, their small circle of interaction that they have with people who call themselves Christians who might not even be Christians or people who are confused. So going through websites and purpose statements of churches and getting feedback from other people saying what they think, the main message of Christianity today, what the foundation is. Here's just a list. I'm going to read through it real quick. You don't have to write it down because there's probably too many. I would say these are competing foundations with the true foundation in the church. Meaning what I'm about to read, they are wrong. These are not correct. You shouldn't believe this, but many people do believe this. They believe this is what Christianity is about in a nutshell. And they say this is what we preach, or some Christians even say this is what we should be preaching as our main first message, the foundation of biblical Christianity. Here we go. False competing foundations. Here they are. Good works. But Christianity, that's not our main message. That's not the foundation. Doing good works. Philanthropy. Helping people, serving the community. That's not our foundation message. By the way, many of the things I'm going to read are actually, they're good things. But they're not the foundation of Christianity. They're not the foundation upon which we build a ministry or our lives eternally. Others would say, no, the foundation of Christianity is the social gospel. Which is kind of a technical term for the first three phrases I just read. The emphasis there on doing good and helping people. Some would say, no, the foundation message is pray. That's what we say first and foremost to people, pray. No, that's not our foundation message. In the words of Keith Green, the musician of many years ago, people in every religion pray. Atheists pray, if they'd be honest at times. Our message is not feed the poor. Our foundation message is not eradicate poverty. Jesus did not eradicate poverty himself. He was God in a body and didn't do that. No, our message should be, this is literally off a church website, racial equality, racial reconciliation. No, that's not our foundation. That's misleading. Uh, no, our foundation should be literacy, free universal health care, gender equality, urban development, societal transformation, save the earth. Protect the environment. Go green and get a t-shirt that says so. Recycle. End global warming. Don't litter. Don't use plastic. Don't use styrofoam. Do you feel guilty now drinking out of a styrofoam cup? You don't need to. 
It's okay. It's not a sin. Other messages that are supposedly religious and at the heart of Christianity. Stop eating meat. Be nice to animals. Dolphins are people too. I've, I've heard that. Or, these are kind of the oldies but goodies or baddies actually in the church. Stop smoking. Stop dancing. Don't play cards. Cut your hair. No tattoos. No, none of those are the foundation message of biblical Christianity. Like I said, many of these things are good things, things that we should do as a result of being built on the solid foundation, but the solid foundation is none of those messages. So what is the solid foundation, the one foundation of a church and true biblical Christianity upon which we build? It's really simple. Real simple. First Corinthians right there. Look at, Go back to chapter 2. Here's what the Apostle Paul said the simple foundation was of a church or any legitimate ministry. 1 Corinthians 2, 2 is just one. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul was single-minded, laser-focused. He was not a philanthropist. He wasn't out to change society. He did one thing. He said it right here. I am determined to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That is the Gospel. That's the foundation. It really is that simple. And then I love this verse in Galatians. If you've got your Bible there, Galatians 6. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Galatians 6. It's the same message, just worded in a different way. Galatians 6.14. But may it never be that I should boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Laser focus. Single minded. The foundation and the one and only foundation is Jesus Christ. Was that the same message that Jesus had? Jesus only had one message. Jesus believed in only one foundation. It was identical to what the Apostle Paul taught, preached, spoke about. Look at Mark chapter 1. I want you to have a couple of verses I want you to look at. This one foundation. Mark 1.15. If Jesus could distill it of all of Jesus' teaching for three and a half years, Jesus taught and preached so much, says John chapter 21, that all that He did in terms of ministry, teaching, and miracles could not be confined in all the books of the world that we have today. And so it was very selective of what the apostles put into the four Gospels to represent Jesus' ministry. And it's amazing in chapter 1 of Mark. Mark chapter 1, 14 and 15 Here is a summary statement that typified Jesus' ministry. What did he stand for? Was he a do-gooder? Was he a philanthropist? Was he first and foremost out to just do miracles? No. Here was the foundation that Jesus was committed to. Mark chapter 1, 14 says, And after John the Baptist had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee. So here's how Jesus began his ministry, and he was consistent with this until he died. Jesus came into Galilee. What was he doing? Preaching the gospel. That was the foundation. More specifically, well, what was that? Verse 15 and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Here's Jesus preaching and proclaiming. Repent and believe in the gospel. That is the foundation of Christian ministry. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent is the first thing. It is a moral message. It's an individual message. It's repent of sin. Recognize that you are a sinner in need of a savior. That's the foundational message. People need to know that. They were made by a Creator. They've fallen into sin. They are cursed and separated from a holy God. They need to repent from sin. Repent isn't saying, I'm sorry. Judas said, I'm sorry. And the Gospel of John tells us he was the son of perdition. He went to hell. But Judas said, I'm sorry. Judas Judas felt sorry. Judas, Judas felt guilt. 
He didn't repent. Repentance is acknowledging your sin, recognizing your sin, and going to God with your sin and saying like David, against you and you only have I sinned. God, forgive me. I need your forgiveness. Help me change with your power, with your spirit, with your forgiveness. Change me, God. That is a synonym for repent is change. But it has to be spirit-induced and led of God. That's true repentance. This is the message of Christ. So, And it's a spiritual message. It's not a social message. It's not a political message. It's not a corporate message, really. It's an individual message. Because each person needs to consider it individually by themselves. It doesn't matter who your parents are, your grandparents, what church you went to. It's between you and the Creator. It's between you and the Savior. It's between you and the Judge of the earth. So this is the nature of the message. It's an individual message. It's a spiritual message. It is Christocentric. It is focused on Christ and Christ alone. It's about what you're going to do with Jesus is the message. Here's Jesus. Here's who He is. Here's what He came for. Here's how you stand in relation to Him. Now you you are forced with a choice. A choice is required of every soul in the face of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, a response is demanded. What are you going to do with Jesus? And also, it's crystal clear. It's black and white. Jesus made that clear. You're either for me or against me. That's literally what He said. Those who are not for me are against me, said Jesus. So this is the foundational message. Jesus came preaching. Here's the essence of what He said. He said, repent. That's the negative side. I've got to deal with my sin. I've got to be confronted by a holy God. I've got to admit that I am a sinner. I've got to admit that I cannot save myself. I've got to admit and recognize that I am going to pay the penalty of my own sin from a holy God. That's the first part of the message. And the second part is believe. So it's repent and believe. Repent and believe is put your faith in. Put your faith. The gospel is the good news. Put your faith in the good news. Put your faith in the good news that can save you. And it's the only thing that can save you in light of the fact that you realize you need to repent of your sin. You can't save yourself. It's not works. You can't earn it. It's simply believing it. That means trusting in Christ, the only Savior. Trusting in Christ who did the work on your behalf. Trust in Jesus Christ who came down from heaven as God and took on a human body, lived a perfect life, never sinned, didn't have a sin nature, willingly went to the cross where He got crucified and while on the cross was punished by a holy God, was punished by God the Father for your sin, for my sin, as a substitute, a deliberate substitute for our sin died and was buried and rose again from the dead and reigns on high as the Savior of the world. And Jesus Himself said that the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who were lost. To save sinners. He's a loving God. He's a gracious and merciful God trying to woo sinners to Himself who are helpless and can't save themselves. That Jesus is the only one that can save. That is the good news. That is the good news and that's why it's called the Gospel. So the simplicity of Jesus' statement Repent and believe in the gospel. It hasn't changed 2,000 years later. We don't need to innovate and invent anything new whatsoever or adapt with the culture. No, we stay faithful to the words of Christ and the mission of the Apostle Paul said there's only one foundation. And going back to 1 Corinthians 3, he said that foundation is Jesus Christ. It is irrevocable. It's not going to change. It transcends time, cultures, people. The very truth of Almighty God. We could go into John chapter 3 where Jesus spoke the same thing. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish in hell but have everlasting life. That is the foundational truth. It's the gospel truth. It's the saving truth. It's a life-changing truth. John 5.24, John 3.36, same thing. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not believe, the wrath of God abides on Him. 
great warning. Or even Matthew 11, 28 and 30 where Jesus said, Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. Those of you who are heavy hearted in this life, you are discouraged in this life, you don't feel like living anymore in this life and nobody can help you and nobody can rescue. Those are the people Jesus said, if you're weary and heavy laden, heavy of heart, come to me. Open invitation of a loving Savior. Come to me and I will give you rest. That's not physical rest. That is spiritual rest. That is eternal rest and comfort. That is deep-seated joy. True eternal identity. And the love of Jesus Christ. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. And His yoke is not burdensome. That is the message of Jesus Christ. That is the one true foundation. I just wanted to make it crystal clear of what that was. There are no competitors. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And we'll move on to point number two. So Paul's reminding the Corinthians, you've got to have the right standard by which you judge and assess. So in light of that solid foundation, which he says is of Jesus Christ, the Corinthians have been rebuked and the Corinthians have been reminded. If they thought back honestly five years ago, okay, was the Apostle Paul faithful and consistent to the one and only true foundation of a church, the gospel of Jesus Christ? And the answer is an overwhelming, resounding yes. Paul was faithful. What in the world are we doing criticizing faithful pastor, Apostle Paul, who was single-minded on the glory of Jesus Christ, his life and his death and resurrection on behalf of sinners? How, how dare us? So he's trying to shake them to their senses. You need to recalibrate your thinking and the way you assess spiritual truth and ministries. Okay, let's go on to point number two. That's after the rule of judgment is Christ the foundation. Now he talks about the revelation of judgment, fire of God. One of the problems of the Corinthians is they became puffed up, proud, arrogant, know-it-alls, even looking down their nose at the Apostle Paul, even looking down their nose at Apollos and Peter. They think they knew it all. They were overconfident in themselves in the accumulation of knowledge that they had amassed much of that wisdom and knowledge they had amassed came from the world and from the Greeks and the Romans. It was pagan human ideology. It was actually worthless, but they thought it was truth. And as a result of this overly prideful, arrogant, critical spirit, they became independent individual judges. And they're judging everything in the church. They're judging Paul. They're judging the teachers. They're uh, judging other Christians. They're judging the ministry in the church. They are self-appointed judges of every other person. How arrogant and wrong is that? And so hence, 12 and 13, Paul has to address this. You aren't the judge. I'm not the judge. No human being is the judge. We can't judge ultimately spiritual realities, spiritual efficacy, spiritual truth. Only God can do that. How presumptuous is that? Let me remind you about who the true judge is. And by the way, the Corinthians, like people, like we tend to do, not only do we presume to be judges, we presume to render a verdict when? Too soon, prematurely, usually when we don't have all the facts and we want to do it in the here and now and we want to do it in this lifetime. And Paul is saying nothing could be further from the truth. Number one, you aren't judges. I'm not a judge. He's going to say that in chapter 4. And we don't judge now and we don't judge in this life. God is the judge, not us. And God judges at the end of the age, not now. So it's kind of a two-pronged rebuke so they have the right idea about judgment. 
and he puts them in their place. And they are believers. They are Christians for the most part. Paul's being a loving pastor. And it is loving, by the way, to rebuke somebody or at least admonish them. And that's what he's doing. He's doing the loving thing. He's doing it with the right spirit. He's doing it being led by the Spirit of God. It's appropriate. They needed to receive it. We need to hear this. We need to receive this. We need to assimilate this into our life and our attitude. Am I overly critical? Am I criticizing other people in church at Grace Bible Fellowship? Am I criticizing my spouse? Am I criticizing and having false expectations for my children with my hyper-spiritualistic standard? Am I judging ministries in the church? Am I judging pastors and teachers in the church? I mean, it just goes on and on. This is how we practically apply this principle right now. That's why there is a verse in the Bible that says, do not judge, right? Jesus said that in Matthew 7. Do not judge. There are times we need to be discerning and have judgment, but there's an illegitimate kind of judgment. There's legitimate judgment and illegitimate judgment. Jesus said the the legitimate kind of judgment is you will know them by their fruits. In other words, as you watch the pattern of somebody's life, the fruit of their behavior will come out. Everywhere he walks, a banana falls out of his ear. He must be a banana tree. The fruit of his life. Everything he says, there's oranges coming out, or there's onions or oranges coming out of his mouth. He's either sweet or sour. But all I see are onions, or all I see are oranges. So Jesus said, You can look at the fruit of their life, which would be their teaching, their words, and their actions. That's tangible things to look at and assess. The illegitimate kind of judgment, the illegitimate kind of judgment that the Corinthians were doing, the illegitimate kind of judgment that Jesus rebukes in Matthew 7, around verse 13 is when we as Christians or people start trying to judge people's motives. There it is. Can you see a person's motives? No. When we start trying to judge a person's intent, that, man, that is dangerous. And that's the thing that Jesus was saying. Don't, don't judge people's motives. Don't judge a person's heart. Don't judge their thought. You don't know their thoughts. Don't judge their intents. Don't, don't judge their ministry in what you think is no efficacy coming from their ministry. Not, that's not ministry, whatever it is. Only God can do that. So it's all these invisible, for the most part, variables involved in a person's life that cannot be judged by us. And that's what the Corinthians were doing. They're judging Paul's motives. They're judging his intents. They're judging that he's not even being used by God. And they were wrong. So he wants to rebuke their false way of judging, practically speaking. So let's look at verses 12 and 13 in light of that. The revelation of judgment. Here's how true ultimate judgment happens. Uh, Verse 12. Now, if any man, if any person, if any Christian builds on the foundation in a church with gold, that's good. Silver, that's good. Precious stones, that's good. Wood, mm, probably not so good. Hay, that's not good. Straw or stubble, that's bad. So what he's saying is Christians can actually do ministry in the church or occupy themselves with things that are either profitable or a waste of time. Gold, that's the best thing we invest our time with in terms of ministry, teaching, how we live our life, and how we help build the church. And then there are other Christians, or even us, we can have a mixture of both, some gold and some stubble. But there are some Christians who waste time and invest their time and energies in things that are not profitable, They're not beneficial to the church. They're not even consistent with Scripture sometimes. They're not complementary to the foundation of Jesus Christ. Maybe it's a worldly endeavor they're trying to incorporate into the church. That's a waste of time. That is stubble. That's not going to last. There's no 
eternal lasting significance to it whatsoever in the plan of God. And you've spent 30 years of your life really investing in that and that at the end of the age when God judges you and you stand before Him, you have nothing to show for it. It was unprofitable. It was a total waste of time. You, Christian, were a bad steward. That's what Paul's saying here. We've got to be careful about how we build on the church. Now, if any person, any Christian, builds upon the foundation in the local church, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. Again, it starts with the teachers. Every teacher in a church, every leader in a church, every minister in a church will contribute either gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or stubble to the church based on how they minister and what they're teaching. This isn't talking about heretics at this point. This is talking about true Christians and how they do ministry. He talks about heretics, false teachers, phonies in verse 16 and 17, but not here. As a matter of fact, in the, in the passage, he talks about three kinds of ministers in the church. First is the wise minister, which was like Paul. That's verse 10 where he called himself a wise master builder. And then there's, uh, there are Christians who are teachers who aren't so wise. Sometimes they don't build carefully and they're actually building with wood, hay, and stubble, stuff that doesn't last and actually smothers the foundation of the gospel of Christ. And then the last kind of teachers in 16 and 17, those are the, the phonies and the false teachers in the church. They don't do anything good. Actually, they just undermine and destroy the church. So he's still talking to believers in verse 12 and 13. Now, if any believer, any Christian, any, any Christian teacher builds on the foundation of Jesus Christ in a legitimate church, they'll do it with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or stubble. But right now, it all kind of looks the same. Oh, doesn't that look pretty? This little seminar that I did, or this Sunday school class that I taught, or this little event that I did, or whatever. And we look at the outer surface of it, and maybe there's a facade that looks pretty, or, oh, that was impressive, and look at all the people that showed up, and, wow, you had that many people that came, and, oh, wonderful. You got that kind of response? Oh, super. And from the, hu from the human point of view, we actually don't know the value of it. Only God does, because He is the judge. And that's verse 13. When will this revelation of true judgment come? Well, it comes with God, and it comes at the end of the age. Verse 13 says this, each man, each Christian's work, each Christian's work of service, each Christian teacher's work of service will become, this is a future event, this is at the end of the age. This is at the time of judgment. It will become evident. It will become unveiled. It will become clearly seen. There won't be any confusion or deception anymore. The truth will be revealed at the end of the age for all ministry. Well, tell us more about it, Paul. What's it going to be like? Well, for the day, we'll show it when Jesus Christ comes and returns in glory. And He judges every soul. And He judges every Christian in the church. And He judges them as individuals and all the works that we did and did not do and the ministries that we did and did not do and our teaching. And it will all be revealed and unveiled and exposed and tested. Well, how is He going to do that? It says uh, the day will show it. The day will make it clear because it is to be revealed with fire. In other words, Jesus the judge who comes out of Revelation 19 with a sword coming out of His mouth and His eyes are like a flame of fire. He's going to take a supernatural blowtorch and to every single one of us. And whatever is hay, stubble, wood, will just burn away. It'll be gone. Whatever was legitimate in terms of ministry, the gold, the silver, the marble, it will remain. And it'll be a blessed thing. And it will be commended and praised by God Himself. And it will actually even be rewarded. Starting with the leaders and teachers in the church all the way down to the most lowly saint in the pew. That will happen when Jesus Christ returns because it will be revealed with fire. This isn't the fire of hell, by the way. 
This is fire, judgment, purifying fire that Jesus will use as he judges Christians at the end of the age based on their service in this life. Every one of us is going to be subjected to this. Who's a Christian? Then he goes on at the end of verse 13, and the fire itself, this purifying fire from Jesus as he uses it on Christians, and the fire itself will test the quality of each Christian's work. So every single one of us is going to have our life and our teaching and our ministry judged appropriately at the end of the age and judged appropriately by Jesus Christ and Him alone. Jesus said in John chapter 5 that the Father has entrusted all judgment to the Son. Who will judge you? Who will judge me at the end of the age? It will be the Lord Jesus Christ with the authority of the Father through the power of the Spirit with a purifying fire. And in light of that, so I don't know how that makes you feel as a Christian. If it makes you uncomfortable, if it's, you're encouraged by that, if it makes you kind of queasy, if it makes you a little fearful, if it makes you a little nervous, if it makes you happy, I'd say all of those things should be true. Because it's, finally justice will be served. Finally the one who really knows and the only fair judge really. Have you ever been judged wrongly inappropriately? The answer of all of us is yes. Have you ever been judged wrongly? Yes. Have you ever judged somebody wrongly? Yes. We're all shaking our heads. So there is that comfort in knowing that the perfect, eternal, all-knowing, gracious, awesome judge Jesus Christ, in the end, we will be judged by Him and only Him. So it doesn't matter what your siblings said about you all those years, or maybe your spouse or your mother-in-law. In the end, well, Jesus will have the final say. And it could be a blessed thing, and it could also be kind of a frightening thing. Because maybe a lot of what we invested our time in will be burned away. And it's like, wow, there's nothing to show for it. There's no reward for that. There's no praise for that. You don't go to hell for it. You're not punished for your sin. This is nothing about being punished for sin. Jesus already died and got punished for all of your sin as a Christian on the cross, right? All of it, as far as the east is from the west. So don't need to be hung up with guilt about that unforgiven sin. That's not what this is about. So with that, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I will close with this, and we'll pick up the next two. Lord willing, if I get back from Siberia, where it's 21 below zero, um, in a couple of weeks. But here, uh, Paul, talking to the same church, picking up on this theme again a little later in another letter he writes, 2 Corinthians 5, reminding them of this idea. You're going to be judged. You're going to be judged by Jesus. We all are. It's going to be at the end of the age. It's going to be with fire. It's not going to be regarding sin. It's going to be regarding our ministry, our life, our works, our teaching relevant to the church and also the foundation of Jesus Christ. And here's what it's going to look like for we Christians, every single one of us, must all, must, nobody escapes this. Every single one of us who's a Christian, this is going to be true of us. We will all appear before, get this, the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema of Christ. The Bema seat or the judgment seat in ancient Rome and ancient Greece Many times it was a tribunal or it was a stage where you would go before a judge and you would get judged. And then the verdict would be rendered. Sometimes it was a, a stage where you go and you re, were rewarded. Congratulations, Olympian. You are the gold medalist in grape smashing. Good job. Then you receive your reward. And so that's the word that Paul picks up on here of rewards. Some are rewarded with gold and some are just, they're not recognized at all. They're not punished. They're just—they're not recognized. There's no reward for them. 
based on what they did. And so for every single one of us as Christians, we must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. He is the judge, the Bema judgment that belongs to Christians. This is not the great white throne. Unbelievers will not be at this judgment seat. This is separate. And when Christians, one by one, we go before that throne, each one of us will be recompensed, paid back, rewarded, literally. Same word meaning earning something in reward for the work that we did. Earning pay for labor. We're not earning our salvation, but we're being rewarded for faithfulness in service so that each Christian may be recompensed or paid back for his or her deeds that they did in the body as a Christian according to what they had done, whether good or worthless is the word. Bad is not the correct word. It's a very specific Greek word. and It means worthless. It doesn't mean sinful. It means worthless. There was no value to it. It is hay. It is wood. It is stubble. Contributed nothing to true spiritual ministry. And as a result, you don't even get a bronze medal for that. Sorry. But the other stuff that you did that was gold and marble, you get a gold medal and a silver medal and a, a seat right up here and praise from God Himself and all kinds of other precious rewards and privileges that you will receive in heaven. And as a matter of fact, that's what we're going to pick up next time is we're going to go into more detail about the rewards of judgment because Paul's going to pick up on that in verse 14 and 15. So we close with having the right rule of judgment or the right standard. That's the foundation of Jesus Christ. And the, the truth about the revelation of judgment at the end of the age by God through Jesus Christ with fire regarding our works. Just a couple of thoughts to, for, in terms of practical application in light of our first two truths for all of us to embrace and think about and meditate upon is remember the one and only true foundation. And, and be like Paul. Be laser-focused. Don't deviate. Don't get distracted by other things. Is recycling good? Yeah, I do it. I get 20 bucks once a month for my cans so we can go to Chuck E. Cheese. But anyway, uh, but it's not the foundational truth of Christianity. So don't let good things distract the greatest thing of all. The one true foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is Him and Him alone that you serve in your daily life and in the local church, ultimately speaking. And the second one to complement that is don't judge other Christians in their ministry. Don't judge their motives. Don't judge their intent. Don't judge the value of their ministry and how God is using them. We're not the judge. Jesus Christ and Him alone. If you want to judge somebody, at the end of the book of Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 16, Paul says, judge yourself. Examine yourself and lay your heart bare before God Almighty and let Him judge you. And we'll keep it there and entrust everything else to God. Let's go ahead and pray. Thank God for our time together. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.